Good day all and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host Rick Cole and each week we come to you from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada, taking you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years. We'll report on all the big hockey news stories from that time period. In this episode, we're looking at the week of January 18th to 24th, 1971. This podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and their support has been absolutely crucial to us in being able to get you all the the news items and other content that we bring each week. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal and Lake Erie. The folks at the Breakwall produce some of the finest craft beers in southern Ontario, and I think they have the best pub food on the planet. When things get back to opening up again, I would love if any of our listeners and followers could make it to Port Coburn and we can sit down at the Breakwall, talk hockey over a beer and a burger. If you like what we do in our podcast each week and every day on Twitter, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe to our podcast. Your subscriptions uh, and thanks to everybody who's already signed up. They help us keep the lights on here and enable us to get more great content. Uh, Subscribers not only get early access to this podcast each week, but we have some really neat stuff uh, in the hopper, special episodes where we delve more deeply into uh, issues such as the uh, death of Terry Sawchuck and the darkness that was Harkness, Ted, Ted, uh, or Ned Harkness's reign in Detroit. Uh, One of our really fun segments recently was uh, a a thing we did on Bob Kelly as a rookie with the Philadelphia Flyers, and he was the subject of a time-honored ritual, initiation ritual, I guess you'd say, uh, where he ended up getting quote arrested it was a fun thing none of the abusive stuff that actually went off went on in those days this was the kind of uh, initiation uh trick i guess you could call it that that really was kind of fun uh so if you really would like to help us out head again to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe and get all this great special content Last week was, of course, a very newsworthy week in the 1970-71 season. The Red Wings made it official. Doug Barkley was going to be the permanent new coach of the team. Ned Harkness was not going to go back behind the bench. The NHL All-Star rosters were bolstered by coaches Harry Sinden and Scotty Bowman. And, of course, the huge news of the week, the blockbuster trade that sent Frank Mahovlich from the Detroit Red Wings to the Montreal Canadiens something that would boost the Canadians as we would see in the coming weeks. Yeah, this time around we have a few key games we'll tell you about. Of course, one of them's going to be the National Hockey League All-Star game this week. And uh, we'll have these other news items. Al Eagleson is going to drop some news on the hockey world that was quite surprising if you took it at face value. After stating he would skip the All-Star game because he didn't think he deserved to be there, Gordy Howe relents and he agrees to appear in the annual contest. And of course, we will talk about the 24th National Hockey League All-Star game at Boston Garden. So let's look at uh, the games right now. 
we, we couldn't cover this week without a full account of uh, the All-Star Game. Uh, it was in Boston Garden, uh, one of the oldest rinks going. Uh, if you had ever been there, and I'm ashamed to admit, uh, I never saw a game there, but uh, from all the accounts I wrote, it was uh, a unique experience, uh, to say the least. Rats as big as house cats were around. It was quite a quite a place. It was also an interesting place for this this year's All-Star Game in which the home team, the East, was upset by the upstart Western Division by a score of 2-1. to one. And you have to ask yourself 50 years later, what the hell kind of score was that for a National Hockey League All-Star Game when you look at the... Uh, uh, whatever you want to call these matches are today. They don't even do it the way they used to. Uh, the game was uh, an upset, but the reason the West won was mainly due to the contributions of some Chicago Blackhawks players. Remember, the Blackhawks were now in the Western Division, and they actually formed the bulk of the nucleus of that team. Uh, Dan Proudfoot of the Toronto Globe and Mail filed a very good report and it forms the basis of what we have to say here. We'll also have some stuff from Pat Curran of the Montreal Gazette who had a few opinions as well on the contest. Dan begins that the All-Stars of the National Hockey League's Western Division beat the better-known Eastern opponents 2-1, to proving Coach Scotty Bowman's contention that the addition of a few guys named Hull can make a hull of a difference. Chico Mackey and Bobby Hall, both Chicago Blackhawks, scored for the West with Yvonne Cornwaye being the only Eastern Division marksman. Bowman, he's now the general manager of the St. Louis Blues, was behind the bench of the winner for the first time in 12 Stanley Cup Finals and three All-Star appearances. In previous East-West All-Star games, the teams tied in 1969 and the East won 4-1 to last year. This year, however, Chicago moved from the Eastern Division to the Western Division and eight of the 20 Western Division players usually wore the livery of the Chicago Blackhawks. And of course, as Bowman uh, predicted quite readily, that made a drastic difference. What a way to go, he said afterwards. The Chicago players made the difference in this game. Bowman pointed to Bobby Hull, a biceps bulging and his best winning smile in evidence, and singled him out as the individual who inspired the win. Hull told Proudfoot, This game was a little different for me. It does mean something, playing for the underdog. It makes it just a little nicer. Hull went on to say that this was light, likely the lightest checking of all the All-Star games. Of course, you have to. It's a pretty potent punch we were facing. It was light checking, but it certainly didn't improve the offense, did it? Hull did amend his uh, statement, however, when he was asked about hitting in the game. The extreme gentleness of the action had many of the 14,994 fans yelling for some kind of show of money muscle or at least a little bit of antagonism. Hall said, I would say perhaps there wasn't as much hitting as in other games, all right. Keith Magnuson, a fellow Blackhawk, put it a little more clearly. You don't want to really hurt anybody. It's the all-star game. Magnuson, of course, was one of the few players who did dish out the odd body check. And if you know Magnuson, you know that's the only way he knows how to 
how to play the game. But he said, not as much as in a usual game where you want to leave guys sitting in the corner. Another thing Magnuson said was that it's harder to hit guys who always have their heads up. What he's referring to there, of course, is that 80% of the National Hockey League players are not the elite players, and they have a tendency to skate around the rink with their heads down. Those are the game guys that Magnuson loves to line up and lay the body on. The West took a 2-0 lead in the first five minutes of this game, and it looked like it might end up being an 11-0 whitewash. Ed Jockman said he experienced uh, what he calls his all-star jinx. Uh, Chico Mackey scored at only 36 seconds with the first shot of the game that hit a net. Uh, he shot between defenseman Brad Park and Bobby Orr. What a defense tandem that is. Can you imagine those two guys on the same team? Uh, he said he eased to the right. The two moved with him. I didn't really expect him to shoot, said Jockman. I, I, I just wasn't ready for it. Ed, who's played in several All-Star games, says, you know, this happens every year. Last year, Dean Prentice scored on me in the first shot. This year, uh, or the year before, I should say, in Montreal, Jockman says he doesn't remember exactly, but somebody scored with the first shot in that game when he came in for the last half of, of uh, the period. Eddie Jockman did say that he doesn't have any similar troubles in regular games. He's not prone to giving up early goals, and if you watch Eddie, you know that he's telling the truth. Ed said the only uh, consolation about tonight is that it didn't cost two points. It took some money out of our pockets. Uh, and then I thought the guys in our team, they might have bailed me out by scoring more goals. They certainly had the firepower to do so. But inexplicably in this game, only three goals were scored. The winners each earned $500 and the losers got 250 The only conclusion is that the prize money has to be raised by the league because many of the players uh, in this game just didn't seem to care about winning or losing. There was literally in this game nothing on the line. As they now start to monkey around with the divisions, uh, moving teams around like Chicago, putting Vancouver in the East, the players have no real allegiance to their division. There's nothing that they really want to get. And a paltry 500 bucks for a hockey player in 1970, that's chump change. But let's not say that all the players uh, were of the opinion that the game meant nothing. Both Hulls, Bobby and Dennis, were among those players who did care. Uh, the elder Hull scored the winning goal when he took Bill Flett's rebound and he slapped it past Jockman from, from just off the corner of the net. Proudfoot describes the game quite aptly, however, when he says most of this contest was about as exciting as a marble tournament with the best shooters. The Boston fan seemed confused with no obvious chars or stars or villains for whom they should cheer or boo. The starting lineup included the Bruins' Phil Esposito, Ken Hodge, Johnny Busick, Bobby Orr, and Ed Westfall and Dallas Smith, of course, appeared in the game a little later. Still, the fans, they had mixed emotions. Chicago's Keith Magnuson, who is a dislike with enthusiasm in Boston Garden, echoed uh, with the cheers when he was tripped by Gordie Howe, who drew no penalty on the play. One fan was hit, was heard to shout, God forgive me, I'm cheering for Gordie Howe. And it was a bit strange to be in Boston Garden and find that the loudest and most prolonged applause of the evening came when Gordie Howe's turn 
came to be introduced in the pregame ceremonies. Now, once Jockerman settled down, the show belonged to the goalkeepers, uh, Jockerman and Tony Esposito, and in the final 20 minutes or 30 minutes, Jules Villamere and Ernie Wakely. That's right. Both New York Ranger goalkeepers were named to the All-Star team, and they split the duties, each playing 30 minutes. And just to show you how little work both uh, Wakely and Villamere had, in the third period, the West outshot the East 7-2. All that firepower on the Eastern Division and they had two shots at Ernie Wakely. Harry Sinden, the retired coach of the Boston Bruins, returned for one night to coach the Eastern Division, which is the custom as he was the Stanley Cup winning coach the season before. While Harry was behind the bench extolling his players uh, with vigorous hand clapping behind the bench, of course it didn't seem to motivate them, Gordie Howe turned to Sinden and said, if you can't win with these guys, you really should stay retired. Now, if this had been a baseball game, the Boston fans might have liked it because it truly was a no-hitter. But they didn't seem to like it. And in fact, the fans at Boston Gardens were leaving early, much before the end of this game. There just wasn't much for them to see. The most appreciative customers on the circuit reacted in true Boston style when the players on the two teams were introduced before the face-off. They accord standing ovations to Bobby Hall, Gordie Howe, and of course a lot of people felt there was something extra about Bobby Orr and the rest of the Bruins. Even Joe Murphy, the popular wisecracker uh, from the uh, Boston press box, he couldn't restrain himself. He was the guy who said, God forgive me, I'm rooting for Howe. Uh, Murphy also said that he liked J.C. Trombley and he was glad that he was on the Eastern Division side too. You get the feeling that some of these people, the partisan fans, they do like players on other team and they did enjoy the chance to root for them for once without feeling particularly guilty. Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press was on hand, of course, as most writers were from around the NHL. And uh, he had... Uh, some good insight into the game and Jack Berry's had enough to deal with this year anyway uh, but he, he uh, made some comments as well. He writes that it was uh, after the NHL's 24th All-Star Game, a writer jokingly asked Minnesota General Manager Ren Blair if the game had been played under international rules but Blair uh, replied nope, it was played under players' association rules, which gives you an insight into what management really thinks of the NHLPA. Blair then laughed and said, we've had about 45 of those kind of games this season. Blair, of course, was talking about his North Stars. He should be happy it's only 45. By season's end, we'll be close to 78 locally, and that's the entire schedule. When the body is taken out of hockey, it's like a tree without leaves. Barry says that unfortunately you can't expect a hockey all-star game to be much different than that. However, no one you see wants to get hurt in a game that means absolutely nothing in the standings and puts very little money in the pockets of the players and the players all readily admit that. Barry says that the hockey all-star game is most likely the dullest of all those of the major sports all-star contests because of the one essential agreement to, uh, ingredient to hockey, body checking, is non-existent in these games. They might not bump as much 
under the boards uh, in basketball all-star games. But you know that each team is going to score 100 points or so. Anyway, that's just the way the basketball all-star game is. In football, they throw a lot of passes uh, in the Pro Bowl, and that excites the fans. Passing is really what brings fans to their feet in football. And baseball's all-star game pits the sports best hitters against the best pitchers in dramatic one-on-one situations. There's no uh, beanballs thrown in baseball, but the baseball all-star game, I always felt, was the best of the games. The all-star game. So Jack Barry, we would ask, how, how do you improve the game? Barry has the answer to that. Uh, he says the all-star game could use something like, well, maybe a penalty shot. There's there's nothing more dramatic than the penalty shot. Of course, something somebody would have to get a breakaway first, and there wasn't much danger of that in the game in Boston. The penalty shot, of course, in 1970 is that rarest of infractions that's called by referees, and that's what made it so really exciting in those days was the penalty shot was rare as we've seen in present day when you have a penalty shot every time the score is tied at the end of uh, a short overtime and regulation time you have a whole bunch of penalty shots and quite frankly I found it's lost its luster it reduces the excitement and I would love to see it go back to the penalty shot used a little more than it was 50 years ago but not become the routine thing we see at the end of games today. Barry said that the All-Star game, though, did have some good points. Gilbert Perot, Buffalo's 20-year-old rookie center, who's practically a cinch to win the Calder Trophy this year, finally got an opportunity to play with some top talent, and he proved he can move in that kind of company and not look at all out of place. Barry ended his game report by saying, obviously, we expect too much from a game of this nature. When you get the sport's best players together, you just naturally uh, expect them to play their best games and rarely do they in an all-star game. After all, the money goes into their pension fund. You think they would appreciate this and put on their best show. Jack Berry says, I guess that we ought to know better by now. And while some things have not changed, the All-Star game or whatever uh, fake uh, event they've replaced it with now is is still just a, an exercise in I don't know what. Uh, things have changed around the All-Star game. The All-Star break in the 1970-71 season was basically two days. After the Sunday night games, they took a day on Monday to travel to Boston, but really there wasn't even that. There were no games scheduled for Mondays anyway in the NHL that year, so it was just business as usual on Monday in 1971. Uh, Monday games were a rarity at best. The game was played on Tuesday night in Boston, and Wednesday night, the teams were right back playing games uh, with contests in New York, Vancouver, and Oakland. So four teams had to travel, at least the players from those teams, had to travel from Boston to be on the West Coast for games the next night. Nothing like the protracted extravaganzas that they put on today, just the dinner the night before the game, and then boom, you're back to work. No wonder the players really didn't want to put out in that game. So one of those Wednesday games featured the New York Rangers hosting the Philadelphia Flyers at Madison Square Garden. And in this one, the Flyers 
blew a 3-0 lead to the powerful Rangers and had to settle for a very unsatisfying 3-all tie. Bruce Keaton of the Philadelphia Inquirer helped us uh, for the information with this report uh, as he was at the game as well. And he said, just when it appeared the Flyers had found a pigeon in the National Hockey League, they found out the hard way what any uh, statue from here to Philadelphia could have told them pigeons don't have any respect the flyers learn that awful fact with just 19 seconds remaining in their game with the new york rangers roger bear the rangers fine right winger demonstrated uh, by beating flyers goalie bernie perrant from close in to give the rangers that three three tie for any other nhl team a tie with the rangers is nothing to be scoffed at especially before a packed crowd of 17,000 250 at the Garden, where the Rangers have yet to lose this season in 21 National Hockey League contests. And especially for an expansionist Western Division team, which of course the Flyers are. But the Flyers were less than ecstatic with the outcome, and understandably so. They came in with a perfect record against the East Division Rangers, having beaten them by a 3-1 score in the Spectrum back last November in the team's only uh, previous contest this year. Two, the Flyers found themselves cruising along with a 3-0 lead shortly after the midway mark of the game. The Rangers, on the other hand, were more than content to salvage the tie and preserve the NHL's only unbeaten home record this season. Over the last two periods, I thought we played our best hockey of the season was the assessment of the Rangers general manager coach, Emil the Cat Francis. Of course, the Rangers needed to play well after giving up first period goals to Jean-Guy Gendron and Andre Lacroix and a second period uh, lamplighter again by the aforementioned Gendron. Not until 1843 of the second session did the Rangers finally bite back, uh, scoring on Rod Sealing's rebound shot. And really, the trend of things to come uh, was apparent in that period, and we should have seen we should have seen the Rangers were not going to be tonight. They outshot the Flyers by a 12-5 margin in the opening period and 15 to six in the middle session. And in the final 20 minutes, while Gilbert and Jean Rattel were ganging up on the Flyers early and late, the Rangers were pounding away at Perrant, dumping in 17 drives to just three by the Flyers against Ranger goalie Eddie Jackman. Jobert made it close at 30, 31 seconds of the third period, getting the puck from Rattel on a faceoff and beating Perrant to the left. And then uh, from that point until Jobert's eight-foot tap from left of the goal mouth found the corner, Perrant was a beleaguered man. Flyers coach Vic Stasiuk explained, he says, we felt back too much in that third period. We gave him too much time to make the play and they made the plays. Our final highlighted game was a Sunday evening contest in Boston in which the Bruins took a 4-2 win over visiting Canadians on Ted Green night. Pat Curran writes that Tom Johnson was talking of the classics last night after the Bruins topped off Teddy Green Knight by beating Canadians 
four to two in a slow pace game at the Garden. Geez, after the All Star game, then a slow pace game like this, Boston fans are going to start asking for the money back on their tickets. Montreal's new coach Al McNeil was not exactly uh, disheartened by the loss to the Bruins in this clunker of a game. He said that Boston club is definitely vulnerable. They didn't overpower us, and I'm far from discouraged. McNeil went on to say that he thought his team played fairly well until they got two third-period goals. Uh, McNeil says the Canadians are still rough in spots, but they're coming. He sees improvement on this team, and he thinks the Canadians can still do something before the end of this season. The addition of Frank Mahovlich, I think, helps quite a bit. This game uh, allowed the Bruins to regain their three-point lead over the Rangers for first place in the Eastern Division. Uh, They scored the first goal in less than two minutes before Yvonne Cornway evened things up with his 26th of the season in the first period. Fred Stanfield connected for the only goal the second period before Ken Hodge and Bobby Orr put the Bruins up 4-1, eight minutes into the final frame. Jean Beliveau's unassisted goal after he stole the puck from Phil Esposito made the game result 4-2 and a little bit more respectable for the Habs. This was, without a doubt, the tamest Montreal-Boston encounter in years and many of the capacity crowd fans complained about it being sort of a leftover from Tuesday's All-Star game. Nonetheless, the Bruins showed more finesse than the Canadians and they were never in danger after Stanfield gave them that second period lead and a 35-foot howitzer following a Beliveau miscue. The Bruins on this night outshot the Canadians 40-36 to and while Rogi Vashon couldn't be faulted for the defeat and he didn't get much support from their weakened defense, the Habs were without Jacques Lapierre with a bruised foot and J.C. Tremblay, who was in uniform, but he didn't play at all due to a groin injury. Greg Body was called up from the AHL Voyageurs, but he didn't see the ice all night either. Pierre Bouchard attempted full game duty along with Terry Harper, Guy Lapointe, and Serge Savard, who came up with a fine effort even though it wasn't a losing cause. The Canadians did uh, suffer from the loss of Claude LaRose, uh, who suffered a concussion against Detroit on Saturday evening. That weakened the right side. But uh, Coach McNeil was very pleased with the play of uh, Henry Richard, who actually moved to the right side on the line with Jacques Lemaire and John Ferguson, and he did not look out of place. The best goal of the night was scored by Bobby Orr, as he often does on most nights. Rookie defenseman Bouchard wound up virtually without his underwear when Orr came in to deke him on a spectacular goal. Tom Johnson, the Bruins coach, called the effort, quote, a classic goal on which the young superstar beat Mark Tardiff. Then Bouchard calmly wrapped the puck home when Vashon dove in vain uh, five feet from his cage. Or said after the game, to tell the truth, I don't know what I did. It was Bobby's 20th goal of the season. Eddie Johnson chimed in, if you don't know, you better keep on doing it. 
How uh, calm was this game? Well, referee Lloyd Gilmore called only four minor penalties during the contest against each team. Uh, LaPointe twice nullifying his team's power plays with sentences for tripping and hooking lazy penalties. The tribute to Teddy Green for about 20 minutes before the game commenced apparently had an effect on both clubs. It always seems to happen that way and usually affects the home club. You can't seem to get your mind on the game when they have these celebrations that take up 10 to 15, maybe even 20 minutes before the opening faceoff. That was the assessment of the home coach, Bruins Tom Johnson. We have a lot of news to get through this week again. A lot more trade talk. So let's get to that part of the, the program right now. The the, the week uh, began with some uh, surprising news out of Toronto where National Hockey League Players Association Executive Director Alan Eagleson announced he would shortly be stepping down from his role with the Players Union. Frank Orr of the Toronto Star wrote that... Uh, Eagleson's resignation was, quote, imminent. Eagleson was expected to make it official sometime during this week, likely during the National Hockey League Player Association meetings in Boston on Monday. Michael Cannon, who's a graduate of St. Mary's University in Halifax, was named to succeed Eagleson in the day-to-day operation of the NHLPA in a new office which would be located in Toronto. Cannon has spent actually several months in Eagleson's law office in Toronto, acquainting himself with the operation of the Players Association. But don't think this is the end of Al Eagleson with the NHLPA, he will be available as a consultant to the players. Well, this, of course, begs the question, why is Eagleson making this particular decision right now? Eagleson is a partner in the Toronto law firm of Blaney, Pasternak, Smella, Eagleson, and Watson. He is also the president of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Association. Al is deeply involved in the organization of next month's Conservative Leadership Convention at Maple Leaf Gardens, which will choose a successor to Premier John Robarts. He feels he can't do justice to both jobs at this team. He's not taking himself right out of the NHLPA equation, but Cannon will be able to handle the day-to-day stuff that usually falls on Eagleson's shoulders. Last week, you know, a lot of observers felt that that huge blockbuster trade between Montreal and Detroit would open the floodgates for a fury of swaps between the various National Hockey League teams. While there have been a few minor deals made, the big deals haven't quite materialized, but the rumors continued to swirl. And here's the most prominent of of those reports on uh, swap chatter from this week. Ren the Bird Blair, the general manager of the North Stars, was reportedly really unhappy with his team's record so far this year, and he told Dan Stone King of the Minneapolis Star that he was, quote, in the mood for deals. However, what his mood may be, Blair said 
he's not close to any trades right uh, at the moment this week. But he did say he's had some preliminary talks. Ned Harkness, the Detroit general manager, apparently had expressed an interest in a Minnesota goalkeeper. The Red Wings need some help between the pipes for sure. Blair said he would be interested in Detroit draft choices, but not in any of the available Detroit players. And who could blame him for that? The Red Wings were apparently looking at Cesar Maniego, but they've also expressed a strong interest in the young netminder, Jill Gilbert. Blair also said that the Rangers general manager, Emil Francis, has expressed some interest in some of the Minnesota first-year players. Uh, they are rookies Fred Barrett, Buster Harvey, and Jude Druin. Francis would like to get his hands on those, but he's not an offering any draft picks to Blair for those for those players. He's offering tired veterans, and Blair doesn't see how that improves his team. At the All-Star Gathering in Boston, uh, Alan Eagleson declared that if the Maple Leafs didn't take action in trading Mike Walton within seven days, he was going to institute legal action against the team. The trade talk was still going around about uh, Walton, but there hadn't been any results. And Jim Gregory said, there will be no press conferences here in Boston. Nothing's happening with Mike. Gregory then left the assembled reporters and boarded a hotel elevator with Marcel Peltier, who is the Philadelphia Flyers director of personnel. Stafford Smythe, the Maple Leaf team president, arrived in Boston with Bruce Norris, the Red Wings owner. They had flown together from Miami after taking in the Super Bowl. Smythe said they talked about players uh, whom they might exchange, but there were no productive results. Eagleson said that he was going to institute the legal action against Toronto simply because he did not want to stand by and see a young player destroyed by the Maple Leafs. Bud Poyle, the general manager of the Canucks, was nearby when Eagleson made the declaration and he chirped in, I'm going to fire you, Eagleson. You haven't delivered Walton to the Canucks yet. Where is he? We want him. Eagleson looked around and said, the only player the least will take from you for Walton is Dale Talon. Poyle says, no way. All of them hopefully knowing that Talon can't be traded anyway. Well, Stafford Smythe was informed that Eagleson's going to uh, institute legal action against the team. He had a, a predictable reaction. Uh, Smythe told uh, Red Burnett of the, Toronto, of the Toronto Star, Eagleson is not running the Maple Leafs. We'll trade Mike Walton when we come up with a deal which will help our team as well as the one Walton moves to. We do not intend to panic and give away a hockey talent. If we can make a deal today or tomorrow, so much the better. We're not dragging our feet to keep the player on the sidelines, but we're not going to give him away. Meanwhile, Eric Whitehead of the Vancouver province reported that Toronto was on the verge of sending Walton, goalie Bruce Gamble, and defenseman Jim Glennie. We think he meant Brian Glennie. I don't think he meant Jim McKenney. But those three were going to go to the Flyers, according to Whitehead, for Bernie Perrant. Whitehead went on to say that if that deal was, as expected, completed on Wednesday morning, then the Flyers and Canucks would engage in a deal that would send goalie George Gardner 
to Philadelphia to replace Perron. Now, I really don't understand Whitehead's reasoning in this and where he would have gotten this information, although it was probably from Bud Poyle. Bud, Bud likes to talk to Whitehead. We do know that. This deal doesn't make sense, the second one with Gardner, because the Flyers would get Bruce Gamble from the Maple Leafs in that deal. What the heck would they want uh, with with George Gardner, with Doug Favell already in place, unless they think Doug Favell is going to be traded too? I don't think so. The Red Wings would like to get Doug Favell from the Flyers. Why? Well, Favelle is a, a lacrosse player during the offseason, although the NHL Flyers have curtailed that a bit. But he goes back away. He knows Jim Bishop and Ned Harkness, who are both lacrosse guys. He's 25 years old. Harkness would like to build the Red Wings around him. Stan Fischler reported that the Bruins want to trade Derek Sanderson to an expansion team. Well, actually, Stan is just speculating what the Bruins want to do. He's reading tea leaves, trying to read their minds. He doesn't know because no one in the Boston front office will speak to him. And of course, that's with very good reason. Hal Sigurdsson, the uh, very prolific hockey reporter for the Vancouver Sun, and Hal, by the way, has never seen a trade rumor he wouldn't report on, has the Canucks making deals involving the aforementioned George Gardner, along with Ray Cullen, Daryl Sly, Serge Obrey, and their first and second draft picks. In fact, Sly was reported on the verge of being traded to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Obrey was supposed to be going to the Detroit Red Wings. Good old Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press was reporting on Thursday that the Red Wings were, as we mentioned before, actively seeking Cesar Maniego of the North Stars, but other goalies they're looking at were Charlie Hodger, George Gardner of the Canucks. This is the first time we heard Hodge's name mentioned in relation to the Detroit club. The problem with a deal like this, according to Barry, is that these teams that own Maniego, Hodger, Gardner are asking for one of Mickey Redmond, Gary Unger, uh, Tom Webster, or the Red Wings' first-round pick next spring in exchange for one of those goalkeepers. Even Ned Harkness wouldn't give up those assets for one of those goalkeepers. That's a no-brainer, even for Ned Harkness. And one, one more note from Vancouver. Bob Dunn of the Vancouver province reported that the Canucks had offered Gardner to Detroit for Don Luce and Freddie Speck, but Detroit didn't seem terribly interested in making that deal either. Now, on Friday, a minor trade was made between the Bruins and the Flyers. Boston sent young forward Danny Schock to the Flyers in exchange for a player to be named later, but there was no word on who that player to be named might be called. On Saturday, in his usual Saturday column in the Toronto Star, the great hockey writer Jim Proudfoot of the Star proclaimed that the Flyers goalies Doug Favell and Bernie Perrant were safe in Philly for the rest of this season. Jim said that the Flyers had announced, or at least he had found out, that neither of these two fine netminders would be trade this season. And yet, still numerous other hockey out news outlets around the NHL continued to speculate that the Flyers were going to swap a goalie. And we have some other news and notes uh, for this week. The Maple Leafs lost rookie forward Daryl Sittler for six to eight weeks. 
with a badly shattered left wrist. This is a terrible break for a good kid and a, a youngster who's showing a lot of potential for the Maple Leafs. Let's really hope that this bad injury does not have an adverse effect on young Daryl Sittler's career. Canadians have a part-time goalie for the Montreal Voyageurs by the name of Ken Dryden. You'll remember he was a great collegiate goalie for Ned Harkness's Cornell University team for uh, quite a few years. Dryden is playing part-time for the Voyagers and attending McGill University uh, Law School. Well, he played a game for the Voyagers this week in Rochester against the Americans, and in a two-all tie, Dryden made 60, that's 6-0 saves. Now, the Habs want to make a deal for Flyers goalie Bernie Perrant, but maybe their net mining solution is right in their own backyard. The newspapers in Pittsburgh, in a story that was picked up by wire services all around the NHL, reported that a deal in which the Pittsburgh Penguins would finally be sold was close to being completed. When the story first surfaced, the report said that the identities of the prospective buyers was a closely guarded secret. But by midweek, we were learning that there were several groups interested, according to the National Hockey League, in procuring the troubled franchise. And this included a local group which uh, included some of the original owners of the Penguins and also mentioned as heading up a group wanting to purchase the Pittsburgh Penguins was former Philadelphia Flyers owner Bill Putnam, who lives, of course, in New York. He's a banker there. National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell said this week that he feels the current balanced schedule in the NHL discourages the passionate rivalries for which the league has been known and that an unbalanced schedule is the answer to the problem. Uh, Maybe the cause of the problem, Mr. Campbell, is not the uh, teams playing the same number of games against each other. Maybe it's the dilution of talent caused by rampant expansion. You add more teams, you don't add more players, the talent level is going to go down. Maybe the passion uh, passion level for these games is going to go down as well. In any event, Campbell wants to go back to an unbalanced schedule where the East teams play against the East more often than they play against the West and the same Uh, In the other way, this, he says, will build up uh, rivalries between teams like Los Angeles and California. Well, if you've seen a Los Angeles, California game these days, you know what? There isn't much there to watch. That's why there's no passion in the games. Players aren't good enough. The Bruins have lost right winger Johnny McKenzie for about a month, and that's bad news for the Boston club. He's got a shoulder injury, and that kept him out of the All-Star game. So to replace him, they've been called young right winger Reggie Leach from the Oklahoma City Blazers of the Central Hockey League. But uh, Reggie arrived in Boston, only be told by Coach Tom Johnson, don't expect to play much. You're going to ride the bench, you're going to watch, you're going to learn, and you're going to be used for spot duty. Uh, and a note about Carl Brewer, the retired uh, NHL defenseman. He has apparently informed the Toronto Maple Leafs, who had permission to negotiate a contract with him from the Red Wings. Well, he's informed the Maple Leafs he will not be signing with the club this season. Why? 
Carl says he's watched the Leafs' recent resurgence and he simply feels that the Toronto club doesn't need him. And our final note this week, it's a punch him like story out of Buffalo. Uh, apparently, uh, during a recent practice and scrimmages, the, the uh, one of the Sabres players wasn't able to hit the net. He was taking shooting drills and he wasn't coming close to any of the goalkeepers. The player was distraught, unable to come close to putting the puck in the net. And he said, maybe I should just go off and shoot myself. Imlac, with his acerbic wit, looked at the players and said, make sure you take lots of bullets. So once again, that's this week's show, everyone. And what did we learn from All-Star Week, actually All-Star Two Days, in the NHL? Well, we did learn that putting all the greatest players in the game on two teams does not always produce exciting hockey. Uh, We learned once again that while there's lots of rumors floating around, the trading activity is uh, much less prolific than the rumors produced by all the chatter. And we learned that Alan Eagleson stepping down as National Hockey League Players Executive Director uh, is big news. He's being replaced by a young fellow who's been his understudy. But will that reduce the influence that Eagleson has over the players? We doubt it. So next week, what do we have for you? Well, here's some of the stories we're working on. The deadline that Eagleson sets for the Maple Leafs to trade Mike Walton arrives. What will happen on that day and what will Eagleson do about it? There will be a trade of a disgruntled player from the Eastern Division to the Western Division. And this is a deal that had future repercussions in the NHL and we'll explain to you how all that will happen you probably know who I'm talking about there will be a couple of other uh, trades uh, completed as well next week and a future National Hockey League general manager will make his professional debut next week we'll tell you who he is you might be a little bit surprised at this guy's identity And we will, of course, have much, much more. The 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we cannot thank him enough for all the hard work he puts into this thing. Andy, of course, produces podcasts as well. If you want to put something together, uh, get a hold of me. I'll put you in touch with Andy, and we'll see if you can get something uh, going. The Rural Alberta Advantage provides our intro and exit music. This Toronto indie rock group puts on a great show. Uh, They're eager to get back on tour. That's not going to happen for a while. But when they do, you get an opportunity to see them. Don't pass it up. The other music in the podcast and sound effects are produced by Andy Cole as well. Uh, Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, all those fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter every day at, at Hockey50Years. We're on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And of course, you can get this podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. Thank you to everyone who tunes into our show. Uh, We're having a blast bringing this to you. It's keeping us going during all the pandemic. And uh, we're looking forward to how this 1970-71 season unfolds. We hope you'll be with us all the way. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice 